0: Let's pray. Father, what a great grace that you have given to us. You didn't wait for us to get our act together. You didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, to do a total makeover. Before the foundation of the world, you loved us and endeavored to send your son to us so that all we receive is grace upon grace. We thank you. Father, I thank you that I don't have to clamor around and figure out what I'm gonna say every week, but you've given us your word. We can open it and understand it and study it and believe it together. And so all we have to do is open the the treasure chest and just unload it. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would do that for us this morning. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, working on my master's degree, uh, the school that I went to, I actually didn't go to Southern Seminary for my master's, I went to a different one, but the one that I went to was hosting a debate between two scholars, one scholar from on our campus, one scholar from off of our campus, and the debate was over this issue of lordship salvation. I'm just curious today in 2021, how many people know what I'm talking about when I talk about the lordship salvation debate? How many of you don't know? Uh, some of you don't want to participate. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Well, the reason I'm asking that is because I think the the collapse of cultural Christianity um, has really caused that debate to fall to the wayside among many evangelicals today. But back in the 1980s, 1990s, the question of lordship salvation was a live issue among evangelicals. Because what you had on the one side was a group of evangelical Christians who argued for what they called the free grace position. They believed that once you become a Christian, that may or may not mean that you actually begin following Christ. They believed that you could accept Christ as Savior while not accepting him as Lord. You could pray a prayer, ask God for forgiveness, believe in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, but your life might not actually be changed after that. You can get your get out of hell free card, but you don't necessarily persevere in faith and and good works after that. Once saved, always saved, even if your life never really changes and you don't follow Christ as Lord. And so that's what they called the free grace position. On the other side of the debate, you had what was called the lordship salvation position. And um, the folks who held this view believed that true salvation always results in a changed life. Salvation is by grace, not by performing good works, but real grace will always lead to performing good works as a result of the grace of God at work in your life. So it's not legalism because both your conversion and your good works are a result of, of what God is doing powerfully in you through the Holy Spirit. So if a person claims to have Christ as Savior but not as Lord, that person's lying. Uh, Christ is Savior and Lord, and you can receive him on his terms or you don't receive him at all. That was the Lordship salvation position. You can see that they were in pretty sharp conflict. One was very accommodating to a sort of a cultural Christianity. You show up to church, you check off that box for the week. It's kind of the culturally appropriate thing to do. But you don't really walk with Jesus, but you know what? You've still got your fire insurance at the end. The other says, no, you've you've got to walk with with Jesus. You receive him as Savior and Lord. Now, you've heard me preach and teach long enough here to know, I hope, what view I held to and still hold to now. It's the lordship view. I didn't always hold to that view. I I, I was a, a creature of cultural Christianity in many ways. But the little Reformed Baptist Church that I attended in college taught me what I think the Bible teaches about these things more clearly. Um, uh, you know, John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, was huge to me when, when I was in college. I can remember remember my own dad challenging me on these questions even when I was in, in high school. So um, So I I had a pretty firm belief about these things by the time I got to seminary and by the time I got to this debate between the the one professor and this other scholar who were differing with one another, and so I was really interested to hear what they had to say to one another, and I was really interested to see one of these free grace people in persons because I'd never seen them. By the way, I don't like the names of these. I believe in free grace too. I just believe grace transforms, but anyway, that's what they called their, their view, But I'll never forget the debate because um, I'd never heard one of these guys in person. And this one was more radical than I could have imagined. And there was a claim that he made that I never forgot. He said, the the, the person who was holding the so-called free grace view, the the one that grace doesn't necessarily transform your life, he said that a person could trust in Christ for one minute and then worship the devil or idols for the rest of their lives after that and yet you would still regard that person as a Christian once saved always saved nothing a person could do even if they became an idolater open idolater or worshiping the devil for the rest of their life nothing you could do could call into the question the authenticity of your conversion now as you hear that i'm hoping that that does a little more than raise an eyebrow for you. I'm hoping that in your spirit it raises up a holy objection like, no, that is insane. There's no way that you could square that with Scripture. That's an error completely at odds with what the Bible teaches. It, it ought to call to mind texts like 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4, which says, the one, that, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So hopefully we know better than to think that we can accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, right? Or do we know that? You think about it, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to challenge the Corinthians with this chapter 13 and verse 5 test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test which means in this book that we're studying Paul is challenging readers to test themselves why would he do that? Because some people need to reconsider where they are standing. Some people who are professing Christ may have Jesus as Savior, quote unquote, but not as Lord. And Paul's saying, test yourselves unless you indeed fail the test. And so Paul's telling the Corinthians, I think he's telling us to test ourselves. Every Christian needs to take a long, hard look at their own heart and ask, do I really know him? Is the evidence there to suggest that I do? Has the grace of God that I profess changed me? Is there any evidence of the Spirit in my life? I think that is what Paul is getting at. If you haven't already, I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're focusing on verses 1 through 10. You know that throughout Paul's second letter to the Corinthians thus far, he's had to give a defense of his apostolic ministry. And in a lot of ways, he's having to do this because he just looks like an unimpressive guy, at least by worldly standards. And Paul is trying to show them that even if his credentials are not impressive by worldly standards, they are pristine by Christ's standards. And if they have been tempted, if the Corinthians have been tempted to turn away from Paul and what his message is to them, they would be turning away from God's truth they would show themselves to do what it says in chapter 6, verse 1, to have received the grace of God in vain, which means to have received God's grace to no apparent purpose in their lives. And God's grace always has a purpose and a result in a person's life who experiences that grace. If a professed Christian is not realizing that purpose, the question that they have to ask is why not? What does it mean when a person appears to have received the grace of God to no purpose or or in vain? And so what Paul's going to talk about in this passage is what I've titled this message, Purposeful Grace. He's talking about purposeful grace. And he's going to expound, I have two points here. He's going to tell us about the foundation of purposeful grace And then the outcome of purposeful grace. The foundation is in verses 1 to 2. The outcome of purposeful grace is verses 3 through 10. So let me explain to you what I mean by that. So the first thing is the foundation of purposeful grace. Everybody look at verse 1. Paul says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, if you're reading the ESV, it says working together with him, which suggests that Paul is working together with God to do his apostolic work. Now, I think that that is true theologically, but I'm not really sure that that's what he's talking about here. That little phrase with him is actually not in the original text. It's just generic, working together. And I think in context, it's suggesting that it's, that probably his uh, fellow workers that he's working together with. Um, uh, fellow workers in ministry like Titus and Timothy and Silvanus, whom he mentions in this book. But what is, he, what is he doing? He says that he's working together with these, I think, other evangelists. And he's exhorting the Corinthians with the same message. He says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. What does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Well, the meaning of the grace of God, I think, is, is clear enough. God's grace refers to his favor upon his people. That's the most generic definition you could give to God's grace. It's God's favor upon his people. And that favor comes exclusively and concretely through the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. Exclusively and concretely concretely through the work that Jesus has done. In, In particular, the work... Uh, that he did in dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and being raised up to give us eternal life. That's God's favor upon His. That's the grace of God. Um, at, at the end of chapter five, you remember that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Paul says that's true of me. That's that's true of every person who's tasted God's grace. Don't receive that grace of God in vain. This is the grace of God that he provides for his people. Once somebody receives that grace by faith, they are saved. And yet here Paul's telling them don't receive it in vain, which means to receive it to no purpose. To have no result of that grace once it's reached into your life. To receive Jesus as Savior, but not to receive him as Lord. To have some kind of promise of future salvation, but to have no result in your life in the present. That would be receiving the grace of God in vain. And one measure of that in this context would be that people might be turning away from Paul and from his message. That would be receiving the grace of God in vain. In chapter 5 and verse 15, you'll remember, Paul says this. He died for all. Okay, that's the grace of God. He died for all. Why? That they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Some people think of salvation simply as this get-out-of-hell-free card, and they skip over what Paul says the purpose of Jesus' death is here in chapter 5, verse 15. The purpose of Jesus' death is so that we might live... No longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. That is the purpose of his dying for us. God's grace always has a purpose. To change and transform your life. To renew you and transform you to look like Christ. If that transformation isn't happening, then you are experiencing purposeless grace. You're you're receiving the grace of God in vain if it is not having its intended result in your life. Paul explains why they should not receive the grace of God in vain in verse 2. Look at verse 2. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And you'll notice the first part of verse 2 is in quotation marks. And it's the text that Chris Birch read right before our prayer of confession. It's Isaiah chapter 49 in verse 8. And it's calling to mind that prophecy from Isaiah about the Israelites who are returning from exile in Babylon. And if, if you look back at that prophecy, it's, 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 it's basically making a, Paul's making a comparison between the return from exile and salvation through Christ. If their return from exile is a kind of salvation... <clears throat> then the time when God has acted in Christ to reconcile the world to himself is the ultimate day of salvation. And so that's why Paul follows by taking over Isaiah's prophecy and saying that now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Isaiah's looking forward to a day. Paul's saying it's now, which is profound because Paul's saying that Isaiah's prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. If Christ really has been crucified and raised, and if the Corinthians have received him as their Savior and Lord, then that is all the foundation they need to continue to live in him. They don't have to receive the grace of God in vain because they have received Christ in this way. And one of the best illustrations of what Paul is writing here comes from Jesus' own teaching. You remember the parable of the soils In Matthew 13 you don't have to turn there I'm just gonna to to share it with you but in the in the parable of the soils Jesus says this he says behold the sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil but when the Sun had risen they were scorched and because they had no root they withered away, and others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to let him hear and and, and in Jesus' teaching, you know that he's actually not talking about seeds and soils; the seed and the soils are representing people and the preaching of the Word of God, and so when Jesus explains the parable, he says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the seed being sown, right? It's the word, the message of the kingdom. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road, the one where the birds came and took it away. And the one on whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word And immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. When you listen to Jesus' parable, this is a parable about life. It's a parable about what kind of people you are going to see who profess faith in Christ. Which of the seeds achieved the purpose for which it was sown? It's really only one. How do you distinguish the one that achieved its purpose from the one that didn't achieve its purpose? The only one that achieved its purpose is that one seed that bore fruit. That's the only one. Of the four seeds, it was the one that bore fruit. What one thing did the fruit-bearing seed have that all the others didn't have? good soil all the others were planted in a place where there could be no growth there could be no root there could be no life one seed was planted in a place where life could spring forth which means that when a person receives the gospel hears the gospel they have to have a heart receptive to God's word before that person can bear fruit There has to be genuine conversion and change of heart before there can be genuine good works flowing from that person. The transformation that Jesus is talking about starts from the inside and works its way to the outside. So as you think about what does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Have I received the grace of God in vain? Think about Jesus' parable. You've got three instances of People who receive the grace of God in vain because the seed falls on this soil that's not ready for the seed. It doesn't want the seed. The seed gets stolen away. The seed gets choked out. The seed gets scorched by the sun. But it's all of them receiving the grace of God in vain. They got the word planted, but it didn't take root, it didn't bear any fruit. Is that the kind of grace you received when you first trusted Christ? Was it the kind of faith that led to good works and the fruit of the Spirit? Or was it the kind of faith that resulted in no good works and you couldn't give two figs about the Holy Spirit? Biblically speaking, you shouldn't view yourself as a Christian unless you've received God's Word with joy and have a life that reflects that joy in Christ and His Word. Anything less than that, is not a saving faith. It may be a religious interest. may be a religious manipulation. It's not saving faith, though. If the faith that saved you didn't change you, it didn't save you. Are you trusting Christ? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life in some way? If not, you do indeed need to test yourself unless indeed you fail the test. And so Paul's talking about the foundation of purposeful grace. Guess what it is? It's the work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. And he's saying that you should not receive that grace in vain. It should be to some purpose, some manifestation of the Spirit's work and control in your life. That's the foundation of purposeful grace. The second thing, though, is the outcome of purposeful grace. Everybody look at verse 3. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Paul saying that he wants to commend himself in every way is him saying, I want you to see the fruit coming from the root in the good soil. Now, again, it's important to remember that Paul is using the first person plural to refer to himself. So when he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, he means, I put no obstacle in anyone's way. He's trying to explain what his life is like. He's undergoing this apostolic ministry. A lot of suffering goes along with it. He's saying, this is what my life is like. And he means that he's conducting his life with uprightness and integrity before God and before man. He doesn't do anything that would be a stumbling block to keep people from living in uprightness and integrity. His main concern is to live his own life in such a way so that no one could find fault with his ministry, so that no one would claim that Paul's ministry is fraudulent in some way, like he's a fake. On the contrary, he says that as a servant or as a minister of God, he wishes to live in such a way that, people, that that would give people confidence. He's trying to commend himself to their consciences. He's trying to say, look, the way I live is completely consistent with what I profess. The fruit is completely consistent with the root. So what would it mean for him to commend himself to others like that? That's what the rest of verses 4 through 10 is all about. He's going to explain to him the characteristics of his life that show there's a consistency between fruit and root. And he gives this long list of characteristics of his faithfulness and hopes that in seeing this integrity, the Corinthians would hang in there with him, believe in in the word that he's delivered to them, and still recognize his apostleship. So really, you, it's a long list, but the, the list actually has some uh, rhyme and reason to it. Because in, in verses, uh, the second part of verse 4 and verse 5, he's going to describe what his suffering is like. In verses 6 through 7, the first part of verse 7, he's explaining what his character is like. And then in the second part of verse 7 through verse 10, he's talking about a series of ironies that mark his experience as an apostle. But all of these experiences, all of them are testifying to the integrity of his ministry, which is Paul's burden to demonstrate. So, so the, the, the first little set there is in the second part of verse 4, where he's talking about what the suffering of a faithful servant of Christ looks like. So look at verse 4, in the middle of the verse. He says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Now, for those who are counting, you'll notice there are ten items in this list of the manifold ways that he has suffered as an apostle. The first thing that he puts in the list is kind of like a heading, though, at the head of everything else. So it's, it's a heading followed by nine different things. And that heading is this issue of great endurance. And so that endurance is highlighting a capacity given to him by the Spirit, a capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty, something like steadfastness or perseverance in the face of difficulty. After that, he lists out what those difficulties are. The first three are expressed in general terms, afflictions, hardships, and calamities. The second three... Um, is is expressed in particular examples, and he points to beatings, imprisonments, riots. The third three speak of hardships that he's voluntarily undertaken, like labors, sleepless nights, hunger. All of this together are experiences that he has endured with um, perseverance and steadfastness. The first thing at the top of the list. Now, if if you want to know exactly what he's talking about, chapter 11 of this book, and just look at the account of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, because that gives us the best commentary on these four verses, because that's where we see Paul's sufferings for Christ spelled out in all of its gruesome detail. We've talked about it in here. You know, he was stoned one time and left for dead. He was whipped and beaten. Um, they, they, he, he had been beaten in the face. I mean, he had gone through all kinds of, of sufferings. Uh, we could read in the book of Acts about these riots that occurred. You remember Thessalonica? You remember why he had to leave Thessalonica, Acts chapter 18? He had to run away because of a riot. And the Christians who were left behind got caught up and persecuted in that riot. He had to, he had to run away um sleepless nights can you imagine the burden of ministry where people are trying to hurt you all the time physically harm you and sometimes you have to run away from city to city and every time you leave a city you're leaving behind these brand new believers who do, who are very new in the faith and you're just well you're thinking about them he says in 1 Thessalonians He he, he was concerned about them that his labor among them might have been in vain, that the tempter might have tempted them. He's concerned about them that they'll fall away. And so he's talking about sleepless nights, the inability to sleep because of the cares and concerns, probably the cares and concerns of ministry, pressures of travel. You know what it means not to be able to sleep. Paul says this was his way of life. He went from one affliction to the next. And sadly, the Corinthians were tempted to view in Paul's weaknesses and suffering, um, they were tempted to view that as a, a mark against him and to turn away from him. Because it didn't look like worldly commendation. It just looked like weakness. But of course, Paul wishes for them to understand that the kind of affliction that he experiences is not the exception for the Christian life, but the norm for the Christian life. After all, Jesus himself was the one who said, if anybody wishes to come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to embrace all the sufferings that go with that. You're going to have to take all the lumps that go with following the light of the world. And we'll have different measures of suffering come into our lives based on God's sovereignty. But we're all going to have a measure of that. And Jesus said, you've got to embrace that. And Paul is saying, my pedigree is Jesus' pedigree. And you've got to see in my life the proof that what I'm saying to you is real. I'm walking in the sufferings of Jesus. Suffering in this life doesn't make you look less like Christ. It makes you look more like Christ. That was true for Paul. It's true for all of us. The issue that we have to keep before us when we suffer is to remember that the suffering is there for a purpose. It's there, God puts it there to teach us endurance, to teach us how to be steadfast and to be faithful to what he's called us to be when it's hard. So it's there to teach us endurance and Endurance in certain virtues, even when we're tempted to give up on those virtues. Well, what virtues? Well, that's the next part of the list. So if verses 4 and 5 are about Paul's suffering, um, verses 6 and 7 are about the character of a faithful servant. They're about the virtues that God is working in his people. He says in verse 6, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. In this part of the list, there are eight items. And they're all reminiscent, I believe, of the fruit of the Spirit. You remember from Galatians 5. He talks about purity. It's a word that means something like sincerity. Sometimes it's even translated as as holiness. He talks about knowledge. Paul's already said in chapter 4 and verse 6 that God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the knowledge of Christ given to Paul by the Spirit in the gospel. It's a gift of the Spirit, knowledge, patience. That very same word appears in the the list of the fruit of the Spirit in in Galatians 5.22. And it refers to a state of being able to bear up under provocation. It has to do with forbearance and patience. And so you can imagine why this quality would be important. If you're a Christian suffering, affliction. How many of you are having patience when you suffer? I can hardly have patience when I'm waiting for the microwave to finish. Paul's getting beaten, stoned. And he's saying that this is working in him, patience. Paul is teaching that we need affliction so that the Holy Spirit can teach us patience. Kindness, that's also listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty two, it refers to the quality of being helpful or beneficial, um, goodness or generosity, to people. So here's another tough question: When you're suffering, I don't know. Think about the last time you were sick. How many of us remain generous and, and attentive to the needs of others when we're sick or ill, or when we're weighed down and burdened by some trial? that we're going through. How many of us are kind and generous and thoughtful, not thinking of ourselves but still putting the needs of others before our own? Paul was was like this. Suffering everywhere he went but always doing it for the sake of the people he was ministering to. Notice the next thing in the list is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one tying all of these virtues together. For the indwelling spirit is what enables them to spring forth from us. We can't make these things happen. The Holy Spirit has to do it. The Spirit is the one who makes our heart into good soil so that the Word can put down deep roots and grow up strong and bear the rich fruit of the Spirit. Notice he says genuine love next. And love is the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's the chief mark of the Christian. There's no true Christian where there is no true love. And here Paul stipulates that this isn't fake love. You can fake love, right? It's not fake love. He says it's the kind of love that we give people. It's not, that, it's not the kind of love that we give people when we're trying to manipulate and, and use them. That's, that's fake love. This is um, literally love without hypocrisy. It means love without pretense. It's genuine. It's sincere. He says truthful speech. Literally, it's it's by the word of truth, meaning that the Spirit teaches you not to lie. Even when it hurts, you speak the truth in love. When they come and tell you at work, look, you're going to have to start using the preferred pronouns or else it's going to be a problem for you here. Paul says, you speak the truth no matter what. The power of God. This is God's own power at work inside of us through the presence of the Spirit. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to act and to will according to his good pleasure. All of these virtues that he's spelling out are fruit of the Spirit. They're the consequence of God's Working in your heart. And guess what? They're happening at the same time the calamities and the sufferings are happening. Paul is pairing together his affliction with this kind of character. It's not like afflictions are happening and then you act bad in the middle of those and complain and act like a non-Christian. And then when the afflictions aren't happening, then you start in with all the love and the kindness and, and that's not it. No, it's both of the, it's the calamities and the character together all at once. And so the last little section here in the list in verses 7 through 10, Paul's going to give the the ironies of a faithful servant. And I call them ironies because what follows are 10 pairs of items. Each item in the pair is is in some way set against the other one or kind of contrasted with the other one. So if you look at the end of verse 7, he says, With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Now, obviously, we know that Paul's not talking about carrying around literal weapons. He's not going from city to city with a sword and telling people, you know, believe or I'll run you through. So he's not talking about literal weapons. He's talking about spiritual weapons. He's talking about what he mentions in chapter 10 in verses 4 to 5 where he says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive. To the obedience of Christ. When Paul talks about weapons and warfare, he's talking about the gospel at war with the false gospels. He's talking about the gospel at war with the false ideologies of the day. And he's saying God is putting weapons in our hands so that we can wage this war. They're not literal weapons, but there are different kinds of weapons because he says, back in verse 7, there are weapons for the right hand and for the left. In Paul's day, if you put a weapon in the right hand, what is it? It's the sword. If you put a weapon in the left hand, what is it? It's the shield. So these are weapons of offense, weapons of defense. You've got both in your hands. In other words, you know how, through the word of God, to hold the ground that you're already on, and you know how to advance on the new ground that you don't have yet. You've got weapons for both. And the most obvious offensive weapon that you have is the word of God, which pierces through and changes people. That's how you take new ground. And you've got the shield of faith. You've got all of that from from Ephesians 6. And Paul says, that's my life. I've got the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. I'm holding ground and I'm taking ground. Look at verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. Notice the ironies here. Paul's proving his faithfulness when he's honored or not. When he's slandered or not, even when they praise him. Sometimes he's treated as an imposter, but he's actually not that, is he? He's for real. He's one of the truest men that you could ever meet. Verse 9 as unknown, when they treat us as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed. Paul's not well known or famous among the Romans. He is not yet then considered one of the great men of the earth, but he was indeed well known among the Christians and a whole lot of Jews. He's sometimes left for dead and yet he lives. They stoned him that one time. And they all thought he was dead, but he's alive. The Lord delivers him. He's sometimes punished, but he's not punished to the death. And yet in all this, look what he says in the last verse. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. People treat the bruised and beat up Paul as a sad man. And yet, in the midst of all the blows, he was always happy in God. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. People treated him as impoverished, yet he, he just didn't have much, obviously. And yet, Paul was delivering to people spiritual riches beyond their wildest dreams. As poor, yet making many rich. Paul was regarded as having, having nothing, but as far as Paul was concerned, he had everything. You remember what Paul said in Philippians? Whatever I thought of as profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything as lost. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Paul didn't think he was at a net gain. For suffering, for Christ? That's not what Paul believed. How could Paul live like that? Because he believed the words of Christ, that whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. It's never a net loss to suffer for Christ. How could a person live like that in the midst of suffering? Jesus told us how we live like this. The only way you can live like this is with the eyes of faith. Do you remember Matthew 13 when Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, here you've got a guy who loses everything all of his possessions he gives away and trades for a field. And it says he loses everything with joy. How do you lose everything with joy? Give up all of your worldly possessions and all you get in return is a field. How do you do that with joy? The only way that you do that joyfully is if you know that what's in that field is more valuable than anything you have. And that no matter what is taken away from you, your health, your family, your possessions all of your love, no matter what is taken away from you, that what is in that field is more valuable than anything. And that you don't come out at a loss on the end. You come out at an eternal reward far beyond anything in comparison to what you've lost. You will have sorrow in this life. Your health will eventually decline and fail you. You are going to face bodily weakness of the sort that you never anticipated you are are going to lay dear friends in the ground you're going to grieve the loss of a beloved spouse maybe or other family your heart will break in a thousand pieces just like paul's did and yet paul says that he was sorrowful yet always rejoicing how did he do that The main difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian is the ability to rightly assess the value of things. What's the difference between the person who hears the gospel and accepts it with joy and the person who rejects it with contempt? What's the difference between the person who's willing to lay down his life to follow Jesus and the person who wouldn't give two cents for Jesus? What's the difference between the person who grieves with no hope And the saint who is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The difference is the powerful presence of the spirit which takes hard soil and breaks up that fallow ground and makes the roots go down deep into the ground. And the spirit makes spiritually indifferent sinners into saints who can see the treasure hidden in the field. It's the spirit of God in the people of God, enabling you to see what no one else can see and convincing you that nothing is to be preferred to this treasure. That's it. That's the only way that you could ever be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. If you were looking at the gospel of King Jesus, crucified and raised for sinners, and you are indifferent to it, you don't see any value in it, That's the evidence of the Spirit's absence in in you. That's the evidence of having received the grace of God in vain. But if you are viewing the cross of King Jesus as the pearl of great price, that's the evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and well in you. And so you test yourself. Do you have that Spirit? Have you received the grace of God in vain? Or have you received the grace of God like Paul did? where the fruit is so clearly connected to the root in a way that's bearing fruit to eternal life. Now, as as I finish here, I just want to say a couple of things. I I understand that I'm talking to maybe two different kinds of people in this room. I know that there are some Christians in in here who have very sensitive consciences. And you hear a message like this, and this is very burdensome to you. And you immediately start thinking, am I really saved? Do I have enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And so if you're the Christian in here with the very sensitive conscience, this message is not here to throw you into confusion and depression, okay? You understand that what we're talking about here, the fruit of the Christian life, we're not talking about perfection in your life. We're talking about a change of direction in your life. None of us is going to reach sinless perfection. And that's not the expectation. But the Spirit will make a change in the direction of your life. A new departure that you can observe. So it's not perfect faith, just mustard seed faith. And if you've got that, that, that that's, that's all that you need. But there's other people, maybe in this room, maybe in the sound of my voice online or, or elsewhere. And they are a professed Christian And they have no conscience. They're not the Christian with the sensitive conscience. They're the professed Christian with no conscience. And the question that you need to ask yourself is, have you received the grace of God in vain? You do need to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Is there evidence there that you care about the things of God at all? And listen to everyone who's who's here, you need to know that the message of the gospel is a free gift. It's nothing you can earn. The salvation and reconciliation to God that the Bible offers is not something that you can do for yourself. It's something that's been done for you. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, he was raised again. If you believe in his death, paying for the the penalty for your sins, and his life offering you eternal life in the age to come, if you believe in the death, burial, resurrection in Jesus for you, the Bible says that you'll be saved. All you have to do is turn from your sin, believe in Christ, you will be saved, even now. People say, you don't do an invitation in your church. Baloney. This is what I'm doing right now. You need to believe in the gospel now. The invitation is wide open for you to repent of your sin and believe. Father, I pray that you would do your work in your people. You know what needs to happen in the hearts that are in this room. And I pray you'd do your work. I pray for the sensitive consciences that you would add affirmation and assurance of their salvation and of the work that you've done in them. And I pray that they would go away encouraged to excel even more Lord I pray for those who are professed Christians but they love their sin they never stopped loving it they keep it in the dark they have a ruse going for whatever reason they've deceived others maybe they've deceived themselves and I pray that you would awaken in them to the reality of the condition that they are in and that you would give them repentance and faith and that they would come to Christ and be safe. And Lord, I pray that they would find the joy that even in the midst of sor- sorrow is always rejoicing. And I pray that you'd do that in all of our hearts. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.